Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Boink Radio Podcast, your one-stop shop for Boink and science news of the past week. I'm your host, Jay Ringo, and joined as always from the Delta from down under, there's favorite Australian Boinker. I already said his name, it's Delta. Hi, Delta. I come from a land <laughs> down under. Uh, I still think our best intro is probably the one where we started with that song. I forget what it's called already. Just things about us. No, I, I think you did the other one, the sounds of then. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Oh, that was good. But hey, how's your tea today? What's going on? Oh, this one is the fanciest I've ever gone. It's so fancy that I forgot to get the biscuits for it. All right, listen to this. Wow. It's lemon sorbet tea. It's loose tea. Um, it contains white hibiscus, lemongrass, lemon balm, Lemon middle, lemon peel, uh, natural and artificial flavoring, and sandy <laughs> everlasting flour. You really took it over the edge with the natural and artificial flavoring. It is, and I don't know <laughs> what this sandy everlasting flour is. I, I don't know. We might have to search it up. <laughs> I don't think you want to know. Well, at least it's all contained in the little um, in the little metal tea bag that I got. Otherwise, I don't want to eat sand. That's gross. So is this? Is this a mix you bought, or did you put this together yourself? No, it together? no. It was in the really, really deep, dark depths of my tea cupboard. And I found it all the oh, way at the back, the and it's the really, really expensive stuff. Wow. Really uh, really flying by, flying high on that quarantine tea, huh? Quarantine! <laughs> Actually, it's great, because, yeah, it's lemon and honey. So, perfect one for feeling sick. Wonderful. And I'm not feeling sick. Just say no. <laughs> yeah, stay away from me. At least six feet away from your microphone. Come on. Uh, I'll have to change my name so I go further down in the list to isolate myself from you. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be perfect. Well, um, other than tea, I think we'll be talking about a little bit about coronavirus this week and uh, Boeing projects that are doing protein folding, and then we'll be continuing our. Uh, tribute to SETI at home as they are finishing work unit distribution at the end of March. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the uh, results and the actual science that is being done by the project. So we're not going to forget about them during this crisis. We're going to keep going. And um, we also got the other episode next week where we're going to do our final uh, episode on SETI at home, the tribute. Uh, And we're going to uh, get a whole bunch of um, talking points from you guys, any stories from you guys about SETI at home, and we're going to send them off with a bit of inspiration. Amen. You know, I just realized I should have had on the soundboard here uh, Tenacious D playing This is Just a Tribute, and we should have opened every episode <laughs> this month with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, time for the intro? Let's go. Uh, Phoenix, the song is This Is Just a Tribute or Greatest Song in the World. But the chorus goes, This is not the greatest song in the world. No, it's just a tribute. You know? Okay, you that... got to put your terrible singing in the bloopers this time. <laughs> you have to. I, I was going to keep it in the show. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> this is the first time I've done my terrible singing. Come on. What are you, what are you missing out on? Great. Uh, so, to kick it off today... Uh, we're going to be talking about Rosetta at Home, uh, which which is a project coming out of the University of Washington in partnership with the Institute for Protein Design, which uh, has inspired the 
Protein Fashion Week, which will still be happening at some point this year. Uh, oh, no, they, have, they have a fashion week for protein? No, we're going to have a fashion week for protein. because protein. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what protein are you going to dress up as? Uh, oh, man, it's recorded on a previous show, so I don't want to say the wrong was it thing. The, was it the Fox 01? No, no, no. Oh, man, I'm going to have to go okay, back. I'll dress up as Fox episode. 01 then. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I completely forgot what it, what it was, but uh, I've got one in mind. But yeah, Rosetta right, at home. Surprise us. Surprise us. <laughs> right. Rosetta at home, going out of University of Washington, Institute of Protein Design, uh, and Baker Labs is uh, a project running on Boink that uh, does protein folding. So protein folding is essentially just uh, they give you work units and your computer runs a simulation with a protein uh, and mixes it around and tries to get it to fit in a specific keyhole, essentially. Um, and it sends your computer will then send that data back to Rosetta at home, and if it's a good fit, the scientists will will go and use uh, your your results in a lab and see if it's really a good fit. You know, so the protein folding simulations give them a good direction where to go. It guides their science, and it it does a lot of work. Um, uh, yeah, I was gonna say just like decision support systems. So um, just like AI is there to help aid decisions, Rosetta at home is there to aid the decisions of scientists and give them uh, something to work off of. Definitely. And uh, so uh, we've talked about this before with the Open Zika project coming out of World Community Grid. They did what? They were like a couple million pro- compounds narrowed down to 23. I, to I think it was in the up. billions. It wasn't in the billions. Really? Yeah. And about. yeah, they, they nailed it down to like, I think they first nailed it down to a couple hundred. And then I think they did another round of it and they nailed it down to about 20, I think. That's crazy. That's so much work. And uh, Yeah. Imagine having to do that without a computer. <laughs> Yeah, not only do the proteins have to actually attach to, and as you say, go into the keyhole, um, they also have to be non-toxic to the human body, and they have to be able to be packaged into a drug and administered. So there's, there's a lot of stuff that makes it really hard to find these sorts of proteins. And uh, Rosetta at home, then, is doing... So they've been doing protein folding for uh, years, really. So they generally, I think, work on HIV and just do other sort of medical tasks. There's a lot of things you can use proteins for, from medicine to design, uh, like material science. Um, But they've recently uh, started working on COVID-19. So they're trying to just kind of throw uh, molecules, compounds, chemicals at this virus in your computers um, and see what happens. And if there's something promising, they'll take that result and go test it in a lab. Most uh, importantly, they're using um, also existing drugs as well. So there's plenty of databases out there that have lots of existing drugs in them. And I'm probably sure if you've been listening to the news on uh, COVID-19, you'll probably be hearing that some places, uh, some some countries have actually made vaccines or have found candidate vaccines. And there's stuff like, oh, this is uh, an existing malaria drug, which is also used to treat severe arthritis or something like that. So Rosetta connects to all those databases to um, also check existing drugs because sometimes some of the drugs we've already made actually can help with something new. Yeah, that's going to be really cool to see uh, beyond COVID drugs. And we never really had the uh, computing resources to really see what they're actually doing. We just know through trial and error and some sort of foundational science that they work for a specific disease or a specific problem. So now that we have computing resources, we can go in and see what actually is going on and uh, get a better understanding of how the human body and medicine works. I'm very excited for that. Yeah, and uh, I also want to clarify, um, for those of you that don't know much about microbiology and um, vaccineology, 
<laughs> no, I, I, like I don't it. know, but real yeah, uh, it's a real thing. for those of you that don't know <laughs> much about vaccines, uh, when you're making a vaccine for a virus, um, it's really hard. So there's three different ways that you can do it. Um, as far as I heard um, uh, from one of the from watching a video on one of the experts, you can either have a live virus to teach the um, immune system how to fight it. You can have a dead virus to teach the immune system how to fight it, or you can create a protein that has nothing to do with the virus, but simply binds to the receptors and stops it from becoming infectious. Or, sorry, rather than, rather than infectious, um, attaching to the human cells and entering the cells and essentially destroying them. And so with Rosetta at home, it's more or less that third option. Um, sorry, Rosetta at home and also the other projects, because there are plenty of other projects out there that are doing it now. It's that third option where they're finding something that binds to the receptors of the virus and stops it from attaching to the human cells. Yeah, so a, a way to picture this, um, picture uh, a virus as a like a, a little little guy, very small guy with a harpoon, and the way it, it, it what it wants to do is shoot the harpoon into your your cell, into your human cell. And what these projects are doing are chewing up gum, which is the proteins they're folding, and sticking it onto the harpoon, so that when it tries to shoot its harpoon, nothing happens. So it can't attach to your cell, and if that Harpoon doesn't fire, then it can't get you sick, and it just dies off. Man, that was a fun analogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was pretty good. And yeah, as most um, biologists and um, protein experts say, it's literally the problem of finding a key that fits in the keyhole. And that's what Rosetta and everything are trying to do. Yeah, Delta, I got a question for you, though. So, like, I have read in many places that there are already vaccines being tested in humans for uh, COVID in particular. But even with vaccines that currently exist, there's still science being done to, to discover more stuff. Like, why do they keep going if we already probably have a vaccine that just needs to go through the trials and, and get out to the public, which will take a long time. But, you know, still we have it. Yeah, so there are a lot of people asking that, too. Um, and essentially, the... Um, the way to answer that is, yes, we may have a probable vaccine that's happening now, but what's stopping us from from finding one that's even more effective? Because the key to the key to making a good vaccine is it has to be it it has to be able to be mass manufactured, uh, it has to be simple, it has to be safe, and it has to be administrable. So it has to be able to be administered into the body through drug form. Uh, if you can make any of those steps cheaper or more effective by finding completely different protein or maybe a smaller protein or a different way of doing it all, then you can make an even better vaccine. So because we're in such a rush now, we might be missing out on some of the actual better proteins or better drugs that we have in our database. And having these computing projects and also uh, projects that are non-computing, such as Foldit, we can actually find stuff that might actually be, be better and find stuff that the um, companies and current vaccine makers are actually missing out on. And we can make a vaccine that's much more effective and much more cheaper. Just like how every year we make the flu vaccine just a little bit better because it mutates, why not spend that computational power in making a better COVID vaccine for right now? Got ya. And I wonder if it has uh, something to do with not just being better, but also different. Because uh, I know one of the problems they're having with uh, COVID right now is testing. And one of the problems with testing is that there's not enough reagent to, and, and the reagent is the part of the, the test that actually reacts with the virus when you, so you, the way you get tested is you get swabbed. Someone sticks a thing in your mouth uh, or your nose, and then they put a chemical on that, which reacts with the virus and lets you know if it's there. So if you don't have that reagent and you only have one test that only works with one reagent, 
uh, with that reagent that you don't have, you can't test anyone. So if you had multiple different tests uh, using different reagents, you could run out of one reagent, but still be able to test people. Similar with vaccines, I think. So if you have one compound that works to fight a virus, uh, well, what happens if you run out of that compound? You have to make this thing. It doesn't, I mean, not a lot of stuff exists naturally, like penicillin. That's like kind of a, a miracle drug. Uh, so you, you want more than one way to, uh, to, attack the, to attack the thing. So you want better stuff and you want different stuff. So dig yourself into a hole. Yeah, and also basically, yeah, that was a great point. And having that backup is also like, oh, what if it mutates? But this this drug still happens to um, happens to fight it, except the existing one that we were using just doesn't work anymore. We have that immediate backup to use. Yeah, beautiful. And uh, Alpi says in the chat that he heard that COVID nineteen split. I would want to confirm that uh, with like a paper or something, because with this sort of uh, scare, there's a lot of news going around. It's hard to say. And I do know coronaviruses are. Uh, they might jump from animals to humans once in a blue moon, uh, but generally they're a very uh, rigid <laughs> type of virus. They're not like the flu, which has a specific mechanism that allows it to mutate very easily, which is why flus are very, very scary. Uh, but So I'm not sure if it's split or if there are just two different strains. Uh, I did read a paper that says that COVID does act like all other SARS viruses and that it evolves itself sort of into a benign type of itself because the more deadly a virus is, the less likely it is to spread because it kills its host and then can't get to spread. So what happens is they kind of evolve themselves out over time, but they still do a lot of damage along that path. Uh, so uh, double check was, that. Yeah, I was going to say, in term, speaking of probable fake news, did you see that uh, news article where um, an Australian couple on one of the lockdown cruise ships ordered wine via drone delivery. <laughs> <laughs> Is that real? Is no, that it was possible? completely fake. It was completely oh, fake. They faked it. And uh, <laughs> no, what they did was they just had the concierge or whatever um, come on and um, bring uh, and deliver the wine personally to them. Uh, they made up the drone story just as a social experiment to see how far it would go. And um, it looks like even big news outlets didn't even check to see if the um, if the um, couple actually used a drone. And it was only until basically all of the news outlets had it on their TVs and on their newspapers that one of the news outlets that didn't have it on there said, hey, you know, we should call them up and ask if they actually did it. <laughs> and they admitted <laughs> in a phone call that, no, they just had it delivered regularly. They didn't have a drone or anything. Wow. Bold move, Cotton. Wow. Um, that's a basketball reference. I don't know if anyone's going to get that. <laughs> What's so, baseball? Basketball. It's not even oh, a real basketball. sport. It's a movie. Yeah, guys that uh, made South Park made this really funny movie. <laughs> Way back. Uh, so yeah, we only have rugby league and NRL here, mate. What's NRL? National Rugby League? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the boys. You only have rugby and rugby. <laughs> huh. So yeah, this is uh this is some pretty cool stuff coming out of Rosetta. They're working on the COVID um problem, let's say. Uh and you can crunch by just signing up for Rosetta at home and doing their work, their CPU project, uh their other GPU projects like GPU grid. And actually, you know, I I read something and I'm reading it right now. I found the post already. It is uh, a post from TN Grid, which I generally don't hear much about. So this is pretty cool. Uh, apparently, they are working on this thing called an ACE2 gene, ACE2, uh, which is closely related to the SARS or to the COVID virus. So 
it's not like they're looking for a vaccine, but they're doing foundational science on the genetics behind it. So Tian Grid is also working on this problem in a sort of from the perspective of know thy enemy, right? So they're doing foundational research into the genes that make up this disease or something. I haven't really read too much about it, but check it out if you want. We'll put the link in the description below. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of um, looking at different projects, uh, a lot of people are also asking, um, is all this computing power and everyone going over to Rosetta taking away from all the other projects? And the answer to that is really no. The projects are still there. They still have the tasks. Tasks get stored for a while, uh, and you can pick up those tasks whenever you can. Um, the only thing I would say is that Rosetta has had incidents like this in the past where a whole bunch of people come onto the project at once and even SETI at home had that problem in the first in the first instance and their service crashed and um uh it's i mean rosetta can technically handle it uh, it's been handling it pretty well um in the last weeks um but yeah if, if you're worried about rosetta at home taking away from all the other science it really isn't if anything it's actually bringing more crunches to the ecosystem because rosetta um their twitter's back online as you said earlier jay ringo um they're advertising everything there's more people that are coming online more people are knowing about it so once we get all these people into rosetta and Rosetta's all finished with the coronavirus or COVID-19, um, they'll start pro proliferating on the other projects because hopefully they'll see, oh, this is actually really cool. I enjoy this stuff. I'm going to do some more science. Amen. Amen. That's one of the really cool things about Boink. And you cut out a little bit there, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I caught what you were saying. So I'm just going to restate it. Uh, People aren't leaving, well, they might be leaving other projects to go to Rosetta, but the main thing that's happening is new people are coming into Boink through Rosetta. And and then we caught what you said at the end there on the effect of that once this problem is done. So with the, the Boink ecosystem where you have uh, all these different projects working on different science, it sort of acknowledges that people have different interests. Those interests change over time. And also society at large has different uh, sort of macro focuses and different micro focuses. So at one moment in time, like this moment in time, it's actually pretty important to be discovering more about viruses and figuring out maybe how to combat uh, COVID. But uh, that will will eventually get this under control, right? And that desire, that micro focus will disappear, dissipate, and people will then zoom out again and think about, oh, what do I want to do large term? Maybe I want to look for aliens if SETI at home is back by then, or maybe I want to look for gravitational waves and pulsars, or maybe you want to keep doing bio biological research. Is that the right word? Whatever. Well, big numbers <laughs> with primes, prime grid. Exactly. So maybe they'll keep folding proteins, but now they're looking for here's to HIV, to to Zika still, or to cancer, or they're doing all this other research just because at one moment in time, everyone was focused on this thing that one of these projects took up and is sort of um, driving engagement. And it is really cool to see uh, Rosetta at Home's Twitter back. They seem very much alive. It's very exciting to see new life in Boeing. Yeah, and uh, just to also reinstate the point that if you're moving away from an existing project to Rosetta, it, there's no there's no problem with leaving it because what those projects do is they generate work units and they store them in their servers for when it's needed. So even though um, Rosetta has all these work units ready to go, um, if everyone's flocking to Rosetta now, probably all the other projects might be building up more work units so that when everyone comes back, they'll have plenty of work units to go through. Release the dam! <laughs> it's like uh, a... Open the floodgates. <laughs> That's it. That's a better one. Release the Kraken. No, never. Keep the Kraken <laughs> in the cage. 
So <laughs> another, um, we mentioned the CPU and GPU difference. So Rosetta is doing CPU. There are some projects like uh, GPU Grid that are doing GPU. I don't know what uh, TN Grid does. Do you know, Delta, if they do GPUs or CPUs or both? I do not have that much experience with TN Grid, unfortunately. Okay, so whatever the case is, we've got those projects, but there's also uh, another distributed computing platform, which has picked up incredible coverage uh, over the past couple of weeks called Folding at Home, and they do GPU group GPU work out of uh, Stanford, I think, is where the project was originally based. Um, it And what we're describing right now happened to them. They have uh, just multiplied their user base overnight, essentially. And they're just like a virus. Their, 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 their infrastructure has struggled to keep up. They're doing amazing work on the back end, working to bring everything up to date, get new servers up, get work units created and all this stuff. But that's exactly the same thing that Delta is describing. Like so every so often, there's going to be people, just a huge wash of people looking for prime numbers for some reason. Who knows what the future is going to hold? And uh, prime prime group is going to have to have a backlog of work units ready to distribute. So yeah, don't worry about switching to Rosetta. Go ahead and do what your heart desires. Yeah, and uh, speaking of projects that work on different hardware, there's also projects that work on a completely different hardware that we probably don't even know, and it's called our brain. <laughs> Okay. Hey. Yep. Um, there's all sorts of um, projects that you can do besides computing. For example, there's a lovely um, protein uh, design um, volunteer science project called Foldit. Uh, and you can just go to fold.it in your web browser and you can get to it. And they've been really active recently and in the last, I think it's been a, it's been a month now since they've changed up everything and um, they actually have a YouTube channel now. They're very active on their YouTube channel. Uh, and basically what this is, it's, it's basically a game that um, literally you go in and design proteins and you fold proteins and you figure out the best way to make a protein, best way to fold it, best way to pick all the side chains, the best way to bond it to different chemicals and stuff like that. And it's really cool. It's actually pretty easy to learn. You might think it is a little bit difficult, but they actually have a pretty good tutorial going. And they have some good um, tutorial videos as well on their YouTube channel. And uh, and essentially, yeah, you just make proteins. And for one of the uh, tasks, or as they call them, puzzles in Fold It Now, you can actually design your own drug to solve the uh, COVID-19 uh, docking problem. And so there are there have been some pretty good candidates uh, there, and uh, I've actually tried to make my own, but it's not as good as all the other ones. Um, but there are also projects other than Foldit, like, uh, for example, Zooniverse.org. Uh, they currently are not doing anything COVID-related as far as I know, but they do have other uh, computing, uh, sorry, not computing, uh, volunteer projects for you to do. Like, for example, the latest one that they had up, have up there that's pretty interesting is uh, finding villages in Africa that need uh, uh, to be attached to the electricity grid. And so if you're in social isolation or... Um, isolation or quarantine or anything. If if you want something to do other than, as I saw on social media, hitting golf balls. Or sorry, not golf balls. Hitting ping pong goal, ping pong balls with golf clubs into cups. Uh, you can go into Zooniverse or fold it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching uh, marble races. I absolutely slaughtered that, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That was fine. Golf cups in ping pong <laughs> clubs. <laughs> Uh, but it's great that you mentioned Foldit because actually Foldit is connected to Rosetta. They are the same entity in uh, in a way. I think they're both connected to the protein or the Institute of Protein Design. Uh, yeah, so, little tidbit there. Uh, I was just gonna say if you're hyped up about uh, Foldit, uh, or if you want to get hyped up about Foldit, uh, they 
actually might use your designs in some research papers. And I've had in the past where uh, they've actually sent me out an email saying, hey, listen, your protein design for this puzzle was really cool. Um, they didn't say really cool. They said it was a probable design. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, hey, can we get your permission to use it in this paper? And so you just tick the box and say, yeah, and then all good. And yeah, it's really cool to be literally hands-on and closest to the sciences you can get without being a scientist. Amen. Although I call myself a scientist. A super scientist. He comes from the land down under. Uh, <laughs> that's our transition. Let's go straight to SETI from that. <laughs> Great. Uh, actually, before we go into SETI, um, is there anything else you want to say about Rosette at home, protein folding, uh, fighting this COVID stuff, wash your hands, etc.? Uh, yeah, wash your hands. Uh, particularly don't have anything else I can see. There's nothing much on the list anyway. Um, does anyone else in the chat have anything to say about uh, Rosetta? What do we have down in the chat? When they're thinking or typing, I will just throw this little intermission in. This podcast is brought to you by the group library.science, uh, supported by the library prot protocol. Uh, library.science is a group uh, seeking to advance scientific curation, education, uh, and communication, uh, along with the decentralized scientific system. You can check out library at lbry.tv. Uh, they are a decentralized content hosting platform helping to usher in that web 3.0 nonsense everyone's been talking about. Uh, check them out. You can do a lot of cool stuff with the protocol. They're not just content hosting uh, because, yes, they are a protocol. Do they have so, books? Also, shout out to all the libraries out there. <laughs> As usual. <laughs> Support your local library. Go in, get a book. Don't forget to return it on time. I had a friend who uh, recently missed his due date by a few days. Oh, they sent him a ticket for like $110. On. And he brought the book back and like, okay, $20. But still, $110. He deserved it. He deserved it. <laughs> That's what I said. But still, $110. Jeez. All right. Um, well, speaking of um, what we got in the chat, uh, Phoenix Archer said... Uh, uh, could there be a project similar to Rosetta, but it researches the best proteins for data storage? So um, to summarize what he's saying there is uh, he's talking about proteins that are used for storing computer data. Um, you might have you might have heard that in the news um, ages ago. I think I, I remember hearing it a year or two back where Microsoft was like, oh, look, we made this thing, data storage. I, I think it was Microsoft or it was some other big company. I don't know. Um, but as for answering that question, um, probably now is not the time. There could be a project in the future that, uh, like, for example, Rosetta could even do it. Uh, they can search for the best sort of proteins or DNA or, like, arrangement of it. But before we do that, we need to have a, we need to have a fixed and standardized sort of process to actually store data in proteins before we can then make it more efficient. Uh, he also mentions that uh, Linus Tech Tips has a team on folding at home. If you're a Linus Tech Tips fan, um, go do some folding at home on their team. Woo! All right. SETI at home. So, unfortunately, um, after all the crunching with SETI, there really is no sort of conclusive result of <laughs> aliens from them. All right. I'm going to put that Dang forward it, to, just to make everyone sad. All right. Um, I was and... really hoping you'd come out and say it was all there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it all started with the wow signal back in the really old days where we were just starting up radio telescopes, which is what brought us the whole, we're going to use radio telescopes to search for aliens. Um, and uh, so we were trying to look for that 
wow signal again. And I'm pretty sure we have found some of them that look like it. The thing is, they're not aliens. They're just stars. They're supernova. They're pulsars. They're other astronomical stuff. And SETI has found plenty of those sorts of bursts. And SETI's data has actually been used in other places that find um, radio bursts. Because when, for example, with Einstein at home, you got gravitational waves and you have pulsars. So if there's a big gravitational wave somewhere, you're probably going to want to know, was there also radio waves coming from it? And SETI at Home is essentially a project that filters through and looks for pulses of radio waves. If it finds one, great. If it doesn't, it's just random noise. And they can actually help in spotting um, phenomena and proving whether or not it was, for example, a colliding black hole or a colliding pulsar or a colliding star or anything like that. So uh, with the results from SETI, basically what they look like is they're just one big graph. So they have uh, the graph is made up of two graphs. Um, the um, biggest part of the graph is the spectral data. So it goes through a whole bunch of frequencies. So you know when you go on your radio and you turn the tuning knob and it goes through all the frequencies, like you hear all the static and then you get to a station and then you go somewhere else. It's sort of like that. And you can see the radio... Like essentially, I'll analogize them as radio stations. You can see the radio stations, the radio emissions, as lines on that graph. Okay, and uh, they're not um, continuous lines. They're sort of like dots. So like they're, they're lots and lots and lots and lots of dots in a line. And what SETI searches for is essentially something that sort of deviates from that line temporarily. And um, the other graph that's there uh, next to that big graph is a measurement of how much the radio telescopes are moving. So the speed of the radio telescopes in a particular direction. And it's actually really interesting because it sort of looks like a dip. It um, it has constant movement and then suddenly it slows down really, really like slowly. And then it then speeds back up like usual. So it looks like a big V shape sort of thing. And it is really interesting to see because when the, when the telescopes find sort of like a signal, they... Um, they slow down and slowly, slowly come on top of it. And then when they get almost exactly on top of that, they almost stop. And then they record the signal for a bit and then they move on. And so it's really interesting to see that data come to life. And you can see all this data for yourself. Uh, it's on the uh, SETI page somewhere. Uh, if you can look at the digital sky survey, I think I remember talking about that last episode. You can go and see all this data for yourself. Um, I think it was digital, digital Sky Survey, or was that something else? But anyway, it's all on SETI's website. You can look for results and everything, and you can see them for yourself. Um, so with the SETI data, you get occasional glitches and radio frequency interference. So what this means is SETI might find a signal, but it really didn't came from. It really didn't come from anywhere. It could have been someone probably five kilometers away switching on their phone. It could be um, someone switching on a light bulb ten kilometers away, or something like that. Uh, so you get these occasional glitches and, and stuff like that. So um, the, an important part of SETI is actually being able to filter out that um, those sort of glitches and everything like that. And uh, that's one role of SETI at home. But also there's another type of signal that they look out for, uh, which is what are called birdies. So they actually look out for birds. <laughs> and what that actually means is a satellite orbiting the Earth uh, happens to send out a fake signal. So it sends out like some little blip that appears on the SETI radar. And the reason why this happens is to ensure that there's no bias with the scientists that are actually looking at all these signals. So if they come across some signal that had like some weird blip, they're like, oh, hold on. Okay, we got it. We got a signal. Let's check whether this is a birdie or not. 
All right, and so oh, oh, let, let's let, they have a whole process. So they go through the whole process, and to ensure it's unbiased, they'll put in these sort of random signals just to make sure, just to keep the scientists on their toes and make sure they're doing a good job. And so they can check whether these are birdies or not. So when they find a signal, they'll process it, they'll look at what it says, they'll see what it looks like, um, they'll see whether it's worth it or anything like that. If it looks like good data and something that's really interesting, they'll then check up with the space agency and said and say, "Hey, did you send a birdie at this time at this place?" And then they'll give them a they'll give them a yes or a no, and if it's a no, it might have been an alien. <laughs> Woo! Um, but no. Um, <clears throat> to go on uh, with signals, SETI uh, looks at two types of signals. They have uh, barycentric and non-barycentric signals. So what that means is, um, oh, I feel like I'm going to flip these up the wrong way. All right. But one of them is where the signal does not account for acceleration, and one is where the signal accounts for acceleration. So what that means is, um, say you're in a spaceship, all right, and you're traveling away from the Earth. Uh, and you're accelerating. So you got your thrusters on, you got your uh, light speed tank is full, so you're ready to go into hyperdrive or whatever, and you want to say goodbye to the Earth. There's two ways you can do that. You can either have your um, simple radio transmitter on your on your spaceship and just simply transmit back to the Earth, or you can have a special type of radio transmitter that tracks the amount of acceleration you have and sends out a signal proportional to that. So the difference between those two signals, if you're listening to the radio on Earth, is one of them, uh, with the typical radio transmitter, it'll probably sound really, really low-pitched, or it might be at a frequency much lower than what you expected it to be at. And that frequency will keep running away from you, because as that spaceship accelerates, the signal gets longer and longer and longer and longer and more lower-pitched and lower frequency, which means that, that freq- you have to constantly tune your radio to hear that signal. Whereas with the special radio transmitter, you only have to keep it at one frequency because the radio transmitter knows how fast the spaceship is traveling, which means that it can change that signal up to make sure it's a constant frequency no matter how fast it's going. And so that's what SETI looks for. And the most promising signals are the ones which are like that special um, that special radio transmitter because you know that it's most likely going to be something that can... Um, modify its radio signals to make it consistent. So that means that you need technology to actually do that. Although there are some astronomical phenomena that do have those sorts of signals, it's really promising because it sort of means that you need technology to do it. Uh, That's not to mention that the um, signals with the typical radio that I said uh, are not interesting. They are, and as I said earlier, they're important to astronomical science, but you never know. Maybe aliens might not have had the technology to know that um, having that sort of regular radio transmitter wouldn't be so good because of acceleration. So we look at, SETI looks at both both those signals. and to conclude it, uh, there were some signals, and you might have heard some interesting ones uh, in the news over, over the years. Um, SETI has their own set of interesting signals. Um, most of them have been just astronomical phenomena, but there are some which we don't know. And one of the interesting ones that we don't know is we found this really big radio burst that came from uh, some part of like the Andromeda galaxy or something like that. And it looked really similar to an electrical transformer. So you know those big things on the on the poles outside your house um, that transfer the electricity from the electricity grid to your home's grid? Um, yeah, the signal looked a lot like the radio signals from that. 
And we were all, all the scientists were like, "Whoa, this is awesome! Could could this be aliens?" And to this day, we I'm pretty sure we still don't know what that is. <laughs> so there's hope out there, and hopefully, SETI might find some interesting things in the data that they that they're going through manually now. I know what that was. Was it you? <laughs> I was making a hot pocket. Yeah, <laughs> it was probably one of the researchers making one of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen Jim Gaffigan. Little aside here. A comedian, American comedian. He has the instructions for a hot pocket. It's a little bit of his. And they go like this. Take out of wrapper, dunk straight into toilet. Done. <laughs> I love it. It's really funny. He's a funny guy. Yeah, we don't have hot pockets out here, so that's probably what we'll do. Oh, wow. We got You're meat so pies, lucky. mate. We're going to have to trade pockets one day. <laughs> huh. Huh. Never thought I'd say that before. <laughs> so... That's that's um interesting stuff with the the way they're doing what they're doing. Uh, has it have they always been doing the same sort of listening for the same signals and and sending or using the same radio dishes or have things changed in the twenty years since they've been operating? The process at which they do it has remained relatively similar, uh, with the exception of like performance improvements and the um, occasional searching for different stuff. So. Um, there's different things you can search for. What what SETI has, have done and what they've been doing for a while now is what's called fast Fourier transforms. So essentially what that means is just basically looking for patterns in the data. Um, now, that's a very general sort of search, and they have, over time, developed more specific types of search, uh, uh, types of searches for very specific sorts of things. Um, in terms of hardware, in terms of radio dishes, yeah, they've they started out with only a couple dishes, and then they expanded to the radio observatory in um, in in the US. I think there's one. Um, they've expanded also to uh, the Parkes radio telescope here in Australia. They have radio telescopes around the world, and they get their data from loads of places. Cool. Uh, well, yes. Have they found terrestrial info? info that was interesting well i mean they discovered my hot pocket being created which i think is interesting (laughs) yeah well the point of positioning of the dishes is in a place where there's low radio frequency interference so chances are uh for those of you that are worried no cooking a hot pocket will not interfere with the radios (laughs) with the radio telescopes right this is what Um, you think they wanted discover aliens (laughs) and figure out when someone's making a hot pocket Now, in terms of answering your question, um, terrestrial stuff, um, I guess in terms of planets, it's a yes, because um, if you're looking for new planets and stuff like that, they do emit radio waves. So SETI is important for finding anything that emits radio waves. And so if it can find the radio waves of maybe a planet or something that might go into a scientific paper, then it'll help out. Um, but maybe the scientists will get their data from somewhere else. It's entirely possible, but SETI can still help out with that sort of stuff. Cool. Phoenix Archer says here that there's a, is this an imposed dead zone? He says there's a dead zone that spans three states in the U.S. And uh, just so that those satellite dishes don't get false positive. And it's not a cemetery. It's just no radio frequencies <laughs> in that area. Ah, right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, he says it's an imposed dead zone. That's pretty cool. Uh, another thing I find interesting about the way they look for stuff is that they've changed sort of what they're looking for over time, right? Like the types of signals that they're, they're listening for, because it's like, it means that the people behind the project aren't just like, let's find radio signals. They're like, let's find intelligent life. And so they're constantly rethinking how intelligent life might be sending signals out. Uh, so they'll, they'll switch for the type they're looking for. And I'm curious 
I'm just uh, looking forward to uh, what they search for next. Like, because I'm sure any significantly advanced intelligence is going to have ways of communicating or different types of signals they're just sending out into space than radio signals. Uh, they'll have probably radio signals and some other really cool stuff that we haven't even thought of yet. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think uh, the folks behind this will probably think of that. They're kind of at the cutting edge of signal technology. Is that thing? Yeah, uh, I mean, if you can apply it to radio waves, you can apply it to any sort of radio. Um, you can apply it to any sort of electromagnetic wave. Um, I think SETI at Home did start out with saying, yeah, let's find aliens. But then they found out, hey, our data can actually be used to find other astronomical events. So they started doing they started doing that as well. Um, and so I think moving on, they're probably, hopefully they should um, start looking at other types of waves and uh, searching not only for aliens, but also for astronomical events, because their data helps out with a lot of different sciences, not just searching for uh, intelligent life. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, I was going to say, we do have a Reddit post up if you want to interact with our uh, podcast. It's about sharing your story about SETI at home. It's on r slash boink. Uh, and basically, we want to hear your story. How did you get into SETI at home? Uh, how much did you crunch it? What did you like about it? Did you have any fun things along the journey that you wanted to share? And uh, now that SETI at home is going out, what are you going to start crunching? Oh, man, I don't know. Was that at home, I guess? <laughs> I have a feeling that's what a lot of people are going to say. But um, hopefully there's some interesting ones there. Yeah, and I know there are interesting stories out there. Uh, I've read stuff about people who have met on the SETI at home forums and have ended up getting married. Uh Hopefully with amicable number necklaces. Oh, man, that's great. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we just bring in your nostalgic stories. Tell us how you got involved. I sort of shared mine the other day. I'll share it again right here really quick. Uh, Study at Home was the first project I ever worked on in distributed computing, and I did it before I even knew what distributed computing was. I did it because I saw it on the news. I'm like, whoa, aliens, come on, let's go. Uh, as a little kid, my parents set it up as a screensaver. Cool screensaver. Right? It was very pretty. It was 3D and stuff and colorful. Whoa. Just like all those proteins you send. You send pictures of. Better than watching TV. <laughs> so much better. Because aliens, come on. And uh, yeah, so I did. I crunched it for a while, not really knowing what it was. Uh, but then I remember reading it about it again some years later and got involved again. And then, you know, noticed that it had turned into Boink and it wasn't just SETI at home anymore. It was a whole bunch of really cool stuff going on. So I played around with that. And now. No, here I am doing stuff with the community and whatnot. How many uh, how many GPUs did you fry? Uh, so far only one. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> my my one's lasted <laughs> a while too. Uh, I'm worried my one's gonna just like die at like any instant now. That one of the fans of one of the fans have stopped working. The card looks a little bit warped. I've had this one for like five years now, and it's been Oof. doing me. It's it's been brilliant though. The the computer components back in the old days are meant to last <laughs> for a long time. Now they just die at the at the just at the hands of software. Even they they die from software. It's crazy. <laughs> they just don't make them like they used to. Yeah. On that note, I think we'll wrap up. <laughs> yeah, make sure you talk about the point workshop. Oh yeah. So share your stories on the Reddit thread and also uh, check out the. Boink Workshop uh, Wiki, which I will put in the description below. Uh, the workshop is happening from September 7th to September 10th in Marburg, Germany, hosted by the Reckoncraft team, uh, coming out of one of the oldest universities in the world, uh, founded in 1500 and something. Um, 
I don't have it in front of me or I'd be reading from it, but uh, I went to the workshop last year. I can't say enough good things about just getting together with people in real life and doing some really cool, fun stuff, like just talking about projects and where we want to see Boink go in the future. And then and where we want to see the next workshop going into Australia. <laughs> right, right, right. <clears throat> don't put it in Australia. Well, okay. No, it's Maybe perfect. We have beach. We, we have a beach. We can all meet up on the beach. Your whole nation, your whole <laughs> continent's a beach. <laughs> it's mostly sand. Yeah. No, otherwise, we can go up into the mountains or we can go oh. out into the outback with the kangaroos. Maybe that's why it's um, a sand flower. Maybe, maybe, but I, I think if I read correctly on the original box, I think it said it came from Morocco. So Also, mostly a beach. Uh, <laughs> a landlocked beach, if Makes I remember. Makes sense. <laughs> if I know my geography at all. I don't think I know my geography at all. But uh, yeah, check that out. Link in the description below. Um, still on. We'll let you know if uh, anything happens due to coronavirus. Otherwise, uh, check out Rosetta at Home at their Twitter, at Rosetta at home. And the at there is the letters A followed by the letter T. Uh, check us out on Boink Network and uh, come on in next week. Thank you everyone for being around this week and joining the chat. I'm guessing that a lot of people are either home from school or told not to come into work. So <laughs> they have the free time to join us today. Yeah, make sure you check out all the volunteer computing stuff if you haven't already done that. And also check out Foldit and Zooniverse.org if you are bored at home in isolation or social distancing <laughs> so if you're ever bored there's plenty of volunteer science that you can do amen we'll see you all next week 4 p.m est on the boink network discord server have a great week everyone i'll see you delta Say see bye. you later and make sure you don't play the black holes again <laughs>